chapter today. It has been, um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating chapter with one of the most famous stories, of one of Jesus' most famous miracles, but man, it kind of takes you some interesting places after that miracle, and so we've been on that journey. We're going to finish it today. John chapter 6, on page 892 of the Bibles in the, the chair backs. If you don't have a Bible, we would invite you to take that one with you. We're going to read verses 60 through 71. And then we will talk about it. So read this with me from John chapter 6. When many of his disciples heard it, which was the teaching, his explanation of, you got to eat my body and drink my blood. That's what's being referred to. They said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus said, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of, <clears throat> the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. So this is, again, coming off of a miracle where Jesus fed the 5,000, which, again, is more than that, likely fifteen to 20,000 with children and women uh, included, and it's this incredible rush of, like, uh, man, incredible like buzz and, and a crowd gathering. I, I, I've encouraged you to try to feel that, to know this sense of, of a movement of people, uh, you know, s- sweeping in to support, to hear, to know. It, there is a buzz. The campaign is working. It, it's, it's getting traction if you're looking at it from a, from a, a, a human perspective of is, is this whole, you know, whatever Jesus is doing, is it working? And, and you would say, yeah, man, this is awesome. He's got this incredible crowd. And, and, and yet Jesus resists that on multiple occasions. He slides out. And on this one, he does that as well. He senses in, in the early parts of chapter 6, after this miracle, that they're going to try to make him king. And he's, instead of leaning into that and going, yes, this is my moment, he pulls away. He goes up to the mountain by himself. And then does this other amazing thing to send a message to his disciples that he's always with them after this incredible moment after feeding the 5,000, they've all got these 12 baskets of, of food overflowing, and then, and then they head across the lake, and, and, and they're, you know, they're terrified in the storm, and, and then Jesus comes walking up on the water. It, it's all of this is the context that we find ourselves, and then they get over there, and, and all these people swarm back in. They're like, hey, we weren't done with you. We want to know more. We, we're, like, like we're, we're here to, to see this show, and then Jesus uh, really blows his opportunity to continue growing a crowd. 
Because he starts talking about how you got to eat my body and drink my blood. And it, and it honestly freaks everybody out. Okay? And I, listen, if, if you're looking at this from a perspective of how do I, like, is Jesus just out to gain a movement, grow a, a, a church, gain a movement, whatever, popularity? This was an ill-calculated move because, and we've talked about, we've alluded to this, but today we see that it goes from fifteen to 20,000 people all the way back down to 12. That's cute. Who's that, Who's that baby walking around in jammies? In a, oh, that's cute. It's fine. You know, don't, you're, you're good. Let him, let him go. That's, that's, I'm sorry. I just saw that. That's, that's cute. Uh, it literally goes from thousands down to 12. What in the world? And then there's this interesting thing that John, the writer points out, and then Jesus himself is going to point out that there's this guy named Judas. Now, we know the end of the story. We know what Judas does, and John is not pretending that we don't know that. He kind of names that too, and Jesus is, like, why, why is Jesus bringing this up? Why is, Ju, why is John bringing this up? Like, what, what are we doing now with this context of the shrinking crowd and the acknowledgement that there are some, even among the 12, who don't believe, and one is called a devil by Jesus and will betray him? What do we do with all of that? What do we do with this Jesus that refuses to um, just, you know, lean in and, and, you know, take advantage of our humanly um, interest? What do we do with this Jesus? What do we do with his insistent um, constant pushback on what the culture and what our world has said is of value. And that's what I want us to hear today in this, this closing chapter. There's going to be some references to the previous teaching. There's going to be, and, and again, it, it's going to end sort of anticlimactically, frankly. But in that, there, there's actually a message for you and I. There's a message for our life that when our life doesn't Seem and, I, and maybe this is just me, and maybe you all don't experience this ever, but when our life doesn't seem like it's going the way that we thought it should, or when it seems like, frankly, God is on the ropes, when it seems like God might be losing this battle, when it seems like maybe we're alone, maybe we're foolish to have followed Jesus in the first place, it's, it's in this moment that this passage, I believe, has the most powerful word for us. So let's dive in and, and let's see how Jesus wraps up this incredible miracle, how he takes us on this journey from this huge buzz down to the shrinking crowd. So verse 60 says, when many of his disciples, now this is, this is again, we've talked about the difference between crowd and disciples. The crowd's just there to see the show. The disciples are generally more in. They're, 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 you know, many of them have believed on Jesus. They're, they're following him a little more closely. And so, so this is even kind of a, a layer down from the, the thousands. But when many of his disciples heard this teaching. And if you weren't here, this is where Jesus literally takes this miracle and then calls them out. Because he says, hey, you're just here because you got your bellies full. And he starts to say, listen, you're, you're, you're here. You followed me across the lake. You have, have rearranged your schedule because you think that that what you need is the next show. What you need is the next filling of your belly. And he says, don't spend your life trying to get the next thing that perishes. 
Don't spend your life laboring for the food that will perish. Instead, spend your life laboring, rearranging your schedule, pursuing, coming after the food that won't perish. And he says, that food is me. You've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now, again, Jesus uses physical examples uh, often to teach us spiritual things. And when you try to understand them from a purely physical and materialistic way, you're going to be confused and often offended. But if you think about the, the examples that Jesus uses, like being born again and, and, and you know, drinking living water that will cause you to never thirst again, or eating of his flesh and drinking of his blood, clearly he's not being literal, right? He's, he's using these things to cause us to to, to understand something deeper and far more spiritual than we are physical, but they're struggling, and they always do, and we do as well, to understand what Jesus is saying because we're thinking about it physically. And so it, Jesus is saying, listen, you, if you don't place your trust in me, if you don't, if you don't take the hunger of your soul and, and come to me for satisfaction, Jesus says, then there's only death in you. There's no hope for you. If you don't bring your need for forgiveness, your soul's stained resume, stained character, as Micah said, unable to stand before God, if you don't bring that problem to me, then you are hopeless. You are destined to death. That's what he means by eating his, his body and drinking his blood. To eat his body is to come to him for sustenance, come to him for your soul's craving. To, to drink his blood is to, is to go to him for your soul's forgiveness, for your atonement, to make you right with God. If you're going to anything other than Jesus, your good works, your philosophy, self-help, whatever, you're going to anything other than Jesus, you're destined for hell. This is the, the teaching that's being referred to. This is what he just got done unpacking. And when many of the disciples heard it, they said, man, this is, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? You ever read the Bible and been like, that's, that's hard. I don't know what to do with that, right? You're not alone. The, the Bible is really filled with actual human reaction to, to um, the same way that you have a hard time with some of these passages. The people hearing them did as well. And so they're saying, listen, I don't know. I don't know who can sit here and listen to this guy and track with him. And Jesus, verse 61, knowing in himself that they were grumbling about this, okay? I, like this has to, I don't know at what point you start expecting this from as, as the disciples. Like you don't, like we can't talk behind his back. Like he, he knows what we're saying. Like he, he's like got those divine ears and stuff. So Jesus knows they're grumbling about it. He's got a high EQ. He, he gets what's going on socially and he calls them out. And he says, do you take offense at this? He's like, are you offended by this teaching? And we're going to see that the next chapter is going to lead us to several offenses of the gospel in, in ways that it's off-putting to our human nature. But Jesus right here is going to call this out as well, say, really, are you offended by this, that I would speak so directly, that I would call you to such a radical faith? And he goes on to say... Verse 62, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Now, you're going to think ahead to Acts 1-8 whenever he does that, and, and that's cool. You should think about that. But what Jesus is saying in this moment is like, are you, are you still struggling to let me say what I need to say and not just, like, at what point will you just, like, give over your attempts to understand and instead just submit and trust? He's saying, are you offended at this? Well, what if you saw me ascending back into heaven where I came from? Would that help you? 
Okay? He's connecting Daniel chapter 7. He's, he's connecting this idea of Son of Man and, and, and the Son of Man being seated at the right hand of the Father in a throne, in a position of authority. Jesus is saying, that's me, and I've came here to you, and, and I'm speaking to you, and I'm giving you the words of life right now. And you're struggling with them, and I get it, but at what point? And so he's saying, would it really help you if you saw me ascended into to heaven? Because some of you, that's what you think. Like, I would believe in Jesus if I saw the miracles that these people saw. Some of you, that's what you think. I would believe in Jesus if I saw what they saw, if I heard what they heard, if I could see him, if he would just do this for, for my body or my friend or my son or my daughter or whatever, then, then I would believe in him. And what Jesus is pointing out is, like, that's not actually what you need. I could show you more signs and wonders, but you're not going to get it. Because he says in verse 63, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. What, what he's saying is, you're not, we talked about this last week, you're not just going to understand it. It's not a matter of aligning the right intellectual information so that it now makes sense to you in an equation. This is something that God is going to reveal to you. So when the Bible is hard, when Jesus' words are hard, we shouldn't grumble and find other people to validate our frustrations. We don't pull away from the Bible and go, you know what, I don't think this is right. I, I don't think it's okay that God says that marriage has to be between a man and a woman. So let me go find other people that agree with me. Have you read that in the Bible? That's offensive, isn't it? I don't like that. There's no way that could be what a loving God would say. And so we go over here and we find our, our people that will agree with us. And then we set up a, a campaign to, to say that that must be wrong. I don't know why it's wrong, but that must be wrong because a loving God wouldn't say that. We, we do stuff like that, don't we? That's, that's a cultural extreme example. You do, you do that on more personal things. Like, yeah, I know God told me I, I should do this, but I don't see anybody else really all that worried about that passage. Right? Maybe that's just like keeping the Sabbath holy, attending church on Sunday. And you're like, well, I mean, I see all these other people doing this or that, travel. Like, it can't be that big a deal. That's the same thing. It's less extreme, but we're still going over here and finding validation from other people that it must not be that big a deal to keep the Sabbath holy when, when Jesus said, no, no, it's a real big deal to keep the Sabbath holy. You see, we're going to struggle with much of what Jesus says. This isn't the only hard thing that Jesus is going to say. Spoiler alert. Keep reading the Bible. You will also be offended. If you haven't been offended yet, just keep reading, Okay. And so what do you do when you're offended and when you struggle to understand what the Bible's saying? Well, you don't run over for, you don't grumble with others. Jesus is saying, flesh is not going to be any help. You need the Spirit. You need to pray. You need to lean in to me. You need to keep reading. You need to lean in and let the Spirit bring the, he said, these words that I'm, I've spoken to you, they're spirit and they're life. It's the same thing he's talking about with Nicodemus. It's, it's not going to be a fleshly. Nicodemus knew all the stuff. It's educated beyond all of it. But Jesus said, it, it's not about that, man. I'm talking about things that are spiritual, things that bring life to the deepest level, and the flesh won't be any help here. You need the Spirit. You need to pray. You need to lean in. Go to, like. Go to people that you know will point you back to the Bible. Go to people that you know won't just tell you the easiest thing and what you want to hear. 
But go to people that will dive into the Bible and seek to bring understanding with you. That's where you go whenever you're, you're not sure about the, the sayings of Jesus. You need to have people that will push you to the scripture, not push you away into a more comfortable place. So Jesus, John just naming it, verse 64. But there are some of you who don't believe. This is Jesus just saying, I'm giving you the words of life, but, but some of you still don't believe. And so if, until you have believed, until you have been saved, until you've been regenerated, the scales of your flesh fall off so that you're, you're, you're seeing with the eyes of your soul, of the Spirit of God, you're not going to make sense out of the things that God has called you to make sense to. It's not going to make sense. As I'm talking about offering every, every Sunday morning, and I'm, I'm saying, like, listen, you know, God doesn't need your money, but he wants your heart. Like, that's, it's nonsense to somebody who doesn't love Jesus, it doesn't make sense. It's foolishness if you don't love Jesus. And, and, and you're not going to want to give him your money until you realize what he's done for you. You're not going to want to give him your, your, your sex life, your dating life, your marriage, your, your, like, until you realize who he is and what he's done for you. And until you get that locked in, like, oh, Jesus is Lord overall. I answer to him whether I like it or not. And... He has descended into our life to give himself for us, to bring us salvation. Oh, he's the good shepherd. I could trust him. I could trust him. It's better for me to trust him than my money? Okay, here's my money, Jesus. It's better for me to trust him with my dating life than, than what the world values or what my eyes say, whatever? Okay, then here's here's my life. Here's my dating life, Jesus. Here's my marriage. Here's my job. Here's my career path. Here, like, oh, now I see who Jesus is. But if we don't see who he is, the rest of this isn't going to make sense. And Jesus is saying, some of y'all still don't see who I am. But he just acknowledges, John does, in uh, the rest of verse 64. He's saying, Jesus knew from the beginning that those, there were people with him that did not believe. And he knew who it was who would betray him. Now, this is an interesting statement that that just names attention that maybe you didn't think existed. I don't know what you've thought about Jesus' interactions with Judas prior to that betrayal. I don't know if we thought, like, I don't know, I don't know what, like, how you've reconciled that story in your own mind of where Jesus began to realize that, that Judas was going to betray him and how he tolerated him. Not even tolerated him, but I believe actually loved him. How did he do that? And, and I don't know where you put that in the plot of the story, but right here, John's saying it was always there. Jesus always knew exactly who Judas was and exactly what Judas would do. And there's others in the crowd amongst the, the, the larger the number of disciples who haven't yet believed. Verse 65, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. He's saying, I, I know I got people here that are fans. I got people here that want to be a part, people here that are genuinely, you know, leaning in. But unless God has granted it for them to be saved, they're not, they're not actually going to come to me and see me as Savior. So verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So this is the real point of it just shifting away. Jesus says these things, 
and the crowds continue. Layer after layer just peels off and goes, okay, this is not what I thought. This is not what I thought it was. I came here because I thought this guy was going to make our life better. I thought this guy might be the one that overthrows Rome. I thought this guy might be the one that, that gets me out of poverty or, or whatever. And some of you, like, that's how people like, come to church thinking, okay, maybe Jesus will, will, will get me out of this funk or get me out of this place in life. And you, you come and you hear that Jesus is actually calling out the things that are wrong with our world, the things that have led to the, the decay of our world and calling you personally to repent of it. Like, that you have offended God with your personal sin and that you need to repent. And you go, whoa, this is, this is not what I thought it was. I thought this was like going to make me, uh, this was going to make me happy or better. Like, this was, this was going to be a, a good, you know, a, a good life path for me that church would kind of enhance my social circle or whatever. Jordan, you told me I get a best friend in fresh breath, and now you're telling me I got to repent of my sin. Like, that's a shift, right? Jesus is offensive to our presuppositions about what he should do. And so people walk away. And Jesus is unfazed. He looks now at a dwindled crowd. I, I, the effects of the land, like he's in a synagogue now, but like the effects of a crowd that has now left are there and now he's just got 12. And he goes, hey. He, he's not pulling his punches. He doesn't stop. He goes, all right, you guys, you guys are going to go too? Verse 67. Do you guys want to go away as well? And listen, listen to Peter's answer. Simon Peter goes, uh, Lord, to, like, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And, and, and we've believed, we've come to know that, that you are the Holy One of God. Here's, here's what I want you to think about here. It seems pretty obvious that Peter's considered it, doesn't it? It's not that it's just this, you know, happy-go-lucky, plastic smile, Ned Flanders faith. No, Jesus, we'd never leave you. Peter's like, I'm not going to lie, Jesus. We've thought about it. But where else are we going to go? Listen, some of you never had space for that in your faith growing up. Like wrestling with hard questions, wrestling with um, deep questions about Jesus and about uh, submitting to him. And Jesus here isn't afraid of our doubt. He isn't afraid of our, of our questions. He comes right at us and says, hey, are you, are you wanting to walk away too? And in that, it's not, Jesus isn't angry. He, he's inviting them to a deeper level of understanding. And, and Peter admits like, I mean, it was a thought, Lord, but where are we going to go? And you think about this. What is offensive about what Jesus has said? Well, he's told them, you're not going to find satisfaction in anything in the pursuit of your own glory. You've got to give glory to me. That's eating of his flesh. You can't, you, you think you know what you need to do to, 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 you know, have your soul be happy, to fix your stuff. But unless that's me, 
You know, it ain't going to happen. You th- and, and he's also said, you need forgiveness. Like, and it has to be through me and me giving of my own body and, and blood for you to be forgiven. So he's saying, you're a sinner. You have to be forgiven. Those are offensive things to the world. Because what we want is to be the, you know, the masters of our own destiny. We want to be able to name what we want to do and rise to that. And we want to be able to feel okay about our, you know, who we are before God. And, and, and Jesus is, is calling all of that out. And, and this is offensive. So I, I got to think that, that for Peter and, and the disciples, there's been some thoughts of like, where would we go? And, and if you're actually thinking about that, like maybe we should go to somebody who doesn't talk about sin as much. We've had people leave our church because we just preach through the Bible and we call sin, sin. We talk, and, and some people don't want that. They want, they want more of this, you know, feel-good self-help. Like, you want to leave here, like, with a, with, a, with a pat on the back and you can do this kind of mentality. But that, I just, we just preach the Bible and the Bible doesn't present that way. We've had people leave because that's not what we do. And, and so if, you, if you're thinking like, well, maybe I need to go to another church or another religion or another place that it doesn't, it's not so negative. They don't talk about sin as much. But, but here's the deal. If you'll actually do that and follow that logic out, then you're going to come to a place where you're going to really struggle to reconcile the actual horrors and sin and atrocities of this world, right? Because things aren't roses and peachy king out there. There, there is actual sin that needs to be paid for, and there's justice that has to be served. And if your God doesn't call for justice and for recompense of that to actually be paid for, then your God cannot be trusted to be just and holy. If you have a problem with the sin and the, and the mess and the evil of this world, then you need a God who also has a problem with the sin and the mess and the evil of this world. And if you try to, to reduce him down to a, a more friendly, love, loving, in your own terms, version of himself that will ultimately forgive everybody in the end, then you have a problem with a God who hasn't taken care of the sin that you also have a problem with. Because if he's not just, if he's not holy, if he's not going to call for the death that he said would come as a result of our sin, then he's not a just God. So where else are we going to go? We're going to go somewhere that minimizes sin? No, that doesn't, that doesn't satisfy our longing for justice. Are we going to go somewhere that like, it doesn't talk about God being so sovereign? I mean, Jordan, you've been talking about some predestination and election stuff and how it's, if God doesn't call, then we can't come. And that, that stuff makes me uncomfortable. I want to go somewhere that doesn't talk so much about that. And, and, and listen, maybe, like, you don't think Peter and them talking about that? Like, man, Jesus is, like, really stepping on toes here. You really want to really want to go to a God that, that says, "Hey, yeah, it, it's up to you." Like you, you'll probably be all right. You'll find the way. No, like I know myself. If the Lord doesn't save me, I I have. It's not just a submission to Romans three twenty three, Romans six. I've seen it in my life. Like, I'm not seeking after God by default. I'm seeking after my own mess. If Jesus doesn't save me, I I won't be saved. So where are you going to go? Like, where else would we go, Jesus? So what you're seeing is this tension from Peter and the disciples that they don't really understand what Jesus is talking about either. They're not sure they're tracking with him either because we have the benefit of being on this side of the cross and communion 
every week where we have pushed this reality hopefully deeper into our hearts and minds, they're on this side of the cross. They don't fully understand what Jesus is talking about yet. So there's this tension of saying, I don't know that I understand what you're saying, Jesus. But what Peter is, is going to take us further into is the place where you and I are going to have to live in the moments when we don't understand our life, when we don't understand what God is doing or why it, it, it doesn't seem clear that he's doing anything. What are we going to do then? Are we going to walk away? We're going to have to find comfort exactly where Peter and the disciples do. And here's what he says. There's a natural acknowledgement of like, where else are we going to go? But he says, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. And, and we've been changed. We, we have believed and we've come to know that you're the Holy One of God. So whether we understand you or not, we know that our only hope is you. We know that all we got is you. We know that understanding will only come through you. So no, we're not going to leave. Yes, there's tension. Yes, there's fear. But there's also Jesus, and they've come to see Jesus for who he is. And there they find comfort in the midst of a world that isn't making sense to them, of a world where the equation's just not adding up. It is there that Peter and the other disciples can stay. Because it's in the presence of Jesus that allows them to have an eternal perspective and a present trust. That though we don't understand what he's doing, we understand that he's the one to be trusted with the future. Um, let's turn to Psalm 73. If you're not familiar with this psalm, it's one of my favorites. It's just, it'll be titled a Psalm of Asaph. And I think there's some parallels here, and I want to use it to illustrate. In Psalm 73, Asaph is taking a look around the world, and he's going to say things like, man, why do, do evil people seem to be prospering? Why is it that the people who don't give a rip about God or doing the right thing seem to be prospering? They got the nice houses. They got the nice cars. They got the good jobs. They got the pretty spouse. They got a happy life. What's up with that? And, it, and, it, and it's not just a surface level like frustration. This has driven Asaph into a deep, deep place of depression. There is a rawness about this psalm that, I, that you need to feel that is not just this, this nice spiritual package. No, there's a rawness to this where he starts out saying, truly God is good, right? That, that, there's, some, there's, some, there's some like questioning in that. Like God's good to those who are pure in heart, right? But... As for me, man, my feet almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was, what, envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. But they have no pangs until death. Their, their life seems to be good. Yeah, like, they're going to die, but man, their bodies are, are they're, they're good looking, they're fat and sleek, right? They're not in trouble as others are. They don't seem to be suffering and struggling the way that, we, that you know, others are. Again, this is perspective. You, ever, you get in this funk? Is everything he's saying actually true? You don't, think there's, you don't think there's evil people that are suffering and dying the same way that Asaph's friends are. But in that moment, what's he seeing? He's, he's made an agreement with the enemy, and he's seeing only the worst, isn't he? 
and he's seeing, it's confirmation bias of what he's believed to be true. And he's seeing all of this prosperity from people who are not following the Lord. They're not in trouble as others are, verse 5. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, their pride is, is in their necklace. They've got, they got some bling on, right? Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff with, with, and speak with malice, right? They're, they're, they're cutting each other down, right? There's, there's gossip among them. Loftily, they threaten oppression, right? They're, 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 they're getting their gain at the expense of, of others. They set their mouths against the heavens. They curse God. They're not, they're not even pretending to try to honor God. They're cursing God, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, as people turn, turn their back to them and find no fault in them, right? People are using these people as, um, you know, influencers and trendsetters because why not? Things seem to be going well for them. And they say, how can God know? Is there, is there a knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain, listen, listen to Asaph, all in vain I've kept my heart clean and I've washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. And if I have said I will speak thus, then I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He says, it seems like it's in vain that I've been keeping my heart clean and not sinning and not going there. This is a dark place Asaph's in. He's really struggling to see why he should keep following the Lord. One of the most glorious words in the Bible is but. But when I thought how to understood this, or how to understand this, it seemed a wearisome task. Is he saying, I he like he's acknowledging, I know I'm not thinking rightly. Okay? I know I'm not rational. I know I need to have perspective. You ever try to tell your spouse to be rational? How'd that go? Right? Because sometimes we're just not. We're just not rational. And we don't want to be. I want to feel this. I'm not done with my grievances. I'll be rational later. Right now, I need to let it out. Asaph's saying, I know. I don't even want to do that right now. That seems really tiring to me. Right now, I'm angry. I'm feeling it. And I need everybody else to feel it. And he says this, until what? Until I went in to the sanctuary of God. It wasn't up to him to figure it out. It wasn't up to him to discern it. What fixed it? Getting into the presence of God. And there, very simple, then I discerned their end. Looking at the world, they're all prospering, seem to be happy-go-lucky. It's all good for them. And he's hating his life. Woe is me. Trying to be good. I'm trying to be pure. I'm trying to follow the Lord. And everything's collapsing around me. And he goes, and then I got into God's presence. And it was there that the Spirit gently reminded him, Hey, Asaph, they're all going to die. And when they die, they literally can't take it with them. And they will spend eternity suffering with a longing for just a drop of the living water that those who have followed me will be 
drinking freely from in heaven. It's there that he, he, he had perspective beyond this temporal moment, beyond the cultural values, to an eternal perspective. And it's there that he was able to see, oh, yeah, yeah, they're not as secure as I thought. Because truly, you set them in slippery places. You will make them fall to ruin. Man, they're destroyed in a moment. See how his perspective is switched now? He's no longer thinking, man, nothing bad happens to them. He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Their kingdom, it's like a house of cards. It comes down in a moment. When my soul, verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, I was like a brutish, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. You ever just lashing out at God, letting him have it? It's just how I've been. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will re- receive me to glory. To whom have I in heaven, or whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Behold, those who are far from you shall perish, but, and you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Does that sound familiar? Verse 23, does it sound a little bit like what Peter is saying to Jesus? He says, where else am I going to go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to realize who you are. Where where else could we go? Asaph says, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my hand. You guide me with your counsel. Afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. You see the parallel? It's very similar language. and, And here's what the Bible is teaching us. Life will not make sense to you if you're trying to look at it from your human faculties and make sense of why is this happening, what's going on, what what is all this. It's only acknowledging the presence of a benevolent and good Savior named Jesus that allows you to make it through moments that don't make sense. Because here's the, the scene, looks like God is losing. Jesus' crowd is gone. He's naming that there's a, there's a traitor in his midst. Why, why, is, why does God bring up Judas? It's weird. And, and you could sit here and point out all the negative about that and go, well, I mean, if he already knew that Judas was going to do it, then, then that must mean that Judas didn't have free will and this and that. And you can, go, you can make all these theological sticking points about this, this deal of God's sovereignty and Judas. Or, or you can look at it and go, well, if Jesus is allowing or even orchestrating that Judas is there, then he must have a purpose for Judas to be there. He must have a purpose for me, for Judas to be here. And when you start to look at your life and you go, God, why is this happening? Why have you allowed this to be in my life? You can have all the sticking points and all the negative, or you can go, if he's allowed this to be here, It must be for a purpose. And you see, it's this eternal perspective that Asaph gets to in the sanctuary. It's this eternal perspective that Peter and and the other disciples get to, and they go, I don't know what you're talking about a good bit of the time, Jesus. 
but you have the words of eternal life. So where else would we go? Much of your life following Jesus is going to be in a similar place. I'm not sure why you're doing what you're doing, Lord. But I know that you are the one that I need. You are the one that I can trust. Because you're the one that's victorious in the end. You're the one that holds it all together. Remember, Jesus just said earlier, God gives me all of my sheep and none of them are going to leave my hand. Jesus, bro, they all just left. Jesus goes, no, no, they didn't. You see, the, the wisdom of the world is going to be deconstructed in Jesus' ministry. The world says, you want to overthrow Rome? You want to restore the kingdom? You got to do it this way. Jesus goes, no, I don't. I could have, but I'm not going to. You see, if the crowds had continued and made Jesus king, what would that have done? Could it have been a moment? Could it have been something we read about in history? Sure. How the Jews overthrew Rome? Sure. Could that have happened? Would we be aware of it? Yeah, maybe. But what a short-sighted and superficial thing. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. I'm going to deconstruct the wisdom of the world from 20,000 down to twelve. And actually only 11. And with those 11, I'm going to turn the whole world upside down. That it's all going to keep going until what you think is wisdom is going to end with, with, a, with a crucifixed, dang it, that word is not real, the crucified Savior. <laughs> I said it a few weeks ago. I said it twice. It is just lodged in my brain. I make fun of myself. It's, it's coming out again. It's not a real word. A crucified Savior is there on a cross. He doesn't deserve to be there. It doesn't make any sense for him to be there. No one would have written a campaign for the Savior of the world to end up there on a cross. And Jesus saying, watch this. Because on the other side of that cross, these fearful and timid disciples become transformed into courageous for Jesus martyrs that plant churches and sling the gospel into hostile places of the world. And guess what? That's how it made it to your ears. Jesus will not be overcome. He has his plan. He has told us, I'm going to get people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And when I'm done, I'm going to come back, and it's going to be awesome for those who have followed me. And it's going to be really bad for those who haven't. That's what's going to happen. You can bank your life on it. And when you have that eternal perspective, you can make sense of Judas's in your life. You can make sense of suffering in your life because He's got a plan. And if he wants this suffering here, this diagnosis here, this person here, this pain here, it must be for a reason. Don't be thinking it's been brought on all by you. He's going to go on to say, Jesus goes, yeah, that's great, guys, but don't forget I chose you. Don't think too much about how you got here thinking, well, I, you know, I brought all this on my, no, no, I, like, I chose you. Yet one of you is a devil. He, he's acknowledging that Simon's there and going to betray him. Sorry, I said Simon. That was, his, that was Judas's dad. But Judas is there. He's going to betray him. Like that's, he's acknowledging that and saying, trust me. So he's looking at you with whatever's in your life, whatever suffering, whatever pain, whatever hardship. He's saying, I know that's there. It's not that I don't care about you. I actually 
put that there? Because I care about you. Because I have a plan. Because if he didn't put Judas there to betray him and lead to the cross, then he couldn't have brought the salvation. Like, it's all for a purpose. He brought about salvation and he used this. It's hard. It's a tension. You got Pharaoh. You got Judas. You got these people. Like, what's God doing there? It's a tension for sure. But the point that he's, put, that he's pressing us toward, it would trust me in that tension. Because you're not going to get away from tension. But you can get to peace. His name is Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, help us to trust you beyond what our human faculties can make sense of and beyond what, what we think is good for us. Would you send your spirit to lift our eyes and to give us faith to trust you in the midst of things that are hard, things that don't make sense. May that not lead us to turning away from you, but rather from leaning in and simply surrendering, saying, I don't know what's going on, Jesus, but I know that you do, so I trust you. Help us have that kind of faith. Holy Spirit, stir in us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.